0: Well, we've been working through the book of Hebrews and we <clears throat> come to chapter 8 and what we've seen is Hebrews is so cool because the writer of Hebrews has his Hebrew Bible which is your Old Testament and he has it open to various passages and he puts his finger in that passage and he studies it in light of the coming of Christ and so he's explaining to us the Old Testament In light of Christ which all of it has been pointing to Christ the whole time and so he's helping us see how Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament scriptures all the old covenant and so he's been working through those those old covenant concepts and showing how they are fulfilled in Christ and last week we saw how he explained that Jesus is a better hope for us to place our hope a better hope as an anchor of our soul because he showed us how Jesus was of a better priesthood. Remember what we saw last week that Jesus, uh, he said Jesus comes of a completely different priesthood than the priests of the old covenant. They were of the priesthood of Aaron because God had designated the Levite tribe and he said of oh, the Levites there's this man Aaron. He was the first high priest. His sons will be the high priest. So that was the Aaronic priesthood or the priesthood of Aaron. And in the Hebrews, the, the Israelites, the Jews, I mean, they were very thankful, and rightfully so, very grateful for the priesthood of Aaron, and they, because of what their ministry was. Their ministry was to sacrifice, to sacrifice blood offerings of the animals on the altar, on behalf of the sins of the people. And that was a great, very important blessing that they enjoyed. And now the writer of Hebrews says to them, you need to understand Jesus is a better hope, because He's of a better priesthood than the priesthood of Aaron. And he said he's the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then he explained, he said, you think that the only priesthood that have ever existed is that of Aaron because you know that God gave you that when he made a covenant with Moses. He said, but there's an eternal priesthood that has existed eternally. And the priest of that eternal priesthood is Jesus. That Jesus blows away that priesthood. Jesus is the great high priest who is the God-man. He went in and offered his own blood, his own life as sacrifice for sins. You can trust in Jesus and he's a better hope and he kind of wound up with this. Why is Jesus the better hope? Why is this significant? What implication does this have for us? He said because he can save perfectly. He saves eternally. He lives eternally, so he is eternal, so he can intercede on your behalf eternally. So he just takes what they knew about the priesthood of Aaron and explodes it and says, Jesus is that and so much more, so much better than the priest you know about. So move your hope off the priest. Of Aaron and put your hope in the priest Jesus Christ, and so now that's what he's continuing to do today Continuing to show us how Jesus is a better hope for us But now he says let me give you the reasons why Jesus is a better hope he says in verse 6 We'll get we'll read all the text in a minute, but the heart of it is found in verse 6 He says but now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. So he's going right at the heart of it. He says, look, you know the old covenant brought you about as the people, gave you the tabernacle, gave you the priests, gave you the sacrificial system, gave you the laws, which was God's will for them. He's saying, that was great. He said, but Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. And that's what we're going to look at today. How Jesus is a better hope because Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 8 and see how Jesus and the new covenant are better than the priests and the old covenant making Jesus a better hope. Let's read the chapter 8 aloud. I'll read it aloud. You follow along. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, hence it is necessary that the high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is a mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second covenant. For finding fault with them, he says, and this is a big, massive quote from Jeremiah 31. It's the largest Old Testament quote in your New Testament. He says from Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, For they did not continue in my covenant, I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them upon their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens, and everyone his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he set a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is being obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Help us to understand what you inspired the writer of Hebrews to write that we may have ears to hear your message, that our minds and hearts would be pointed to Christ, that we would have faith, faith in Jesus, as the author points us to have faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in these verses, we're going to see two ways that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And the point is, Trust in Jesus, he's a better hope than anything else or anyone else. The first way he's going to tell us is that Jesus serves in a better tabernacle. Jesus serves in a better tabernacle and then he's going to show us that Jesus serves a better covenant with better promises. So a better tabernacle and a better covenant with better promises. We're going to see the first part, the better tabernacle in verses 1 through 5. In verse 1 he says, now the main point And what I've been saying is this. And now what is he referring to other than what he's been talking about in chapter... Basically all the letter of Hebrews. But just last week in chapter 7, he was saying, as I reviewed, that Jesus is the great high priest of the great high priesthood. It's better than these priests that you know. And so he says, look, to the main point, we have such a high priest, verse 1, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, a tabernacle which the Lord built, not man. You know, when you're watching the football games and the, the little goofy pictures of the players kind of looking there, trying to look normal, and they tell what college they're from, you know, and they're kind of sitting there, and it's like, that's just weird. But one of them always says this, Jerry, what do they say? The Ohio State. I'm like, really? Like, that's the only college that exists on the planet of the earth. The Ohio State. What they're saying is, you got universities, you got uh, Ohio universities, but this is the Ohio State University. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, you know your tabernacle? And you know your priest? Well, Jesus is the priest of the tabernacle. You don't have a clue what a tabernacle is other than the fact that this has only been a picture of the heavenly tabernacles. And so just like he was blowing their mind about the priesthood, where all they knew was this narrow focus of of these priests of Aaron that the Old Covenant gave them from Moses on until their day, which was a great gift, and last week he blew their mind and said, He's the priest of the eternal priesthood which is far superior than this temporary little priesthood of Aaron. He's the eternal priest of the eternal priesthood that has existed eternally eternally, and will always exist eternally. Now he was saying, you know the tabernacle that is so important to you. Well, that's just a mere shadow, a mere replica, a mere picture of the tabernacle of God. And so once again, he's blowing their mind and saying that this tabernacle is is not the end of it. This is just the beginning. This was just a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And he begins to explain in verse uh, 4 or verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it was necessary that... THIS HIGH PRIEST, MEANING JESUS, ALSO has SOMETHING TO OFFER HIMSELF. NOW IF HE WERE ON EARTH, THIS IS FUNNY WHAT HE SAYS IN VERSE 4, NOW IF JESUS WERE ON EARTH, HE WOULDN'T EVEN BE A PRIEST IN YOUR SYSTEM. BECAUSE YOU HAVE TO BE OF THE LINE OF AARON TO BE A PRIEST IN YOUR SYSTEM. HE WOULDN'T EVEN BE A PRIEST AT ALL SINCE THERE ARE THOSE WHO OFFER GIFTS ACCORDING TO THE LAW who, he says, about their priests, according to the law of Aaron, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then he says, now remember when Moses was given the instructions in Exodus where God brought them across the the Red Sea out of Egypt, brought them up to Mount Sinai, God gave Moses as a part of the Old Covenant instructions to build this tabernacle. We studied that when we studied Exodus. And do you remember what he said? He said, tell them to build it exactly like I give them instructions to build. In fact, the instructions in the book of Exodus are given, and then at the end of the book of Exodus, the whole thing is given again. The point being made in the book of Exodus is the instructions were given with great detail, and they built it exactly as they had been instructed. Now, why was that so important? Why was it important that they build it exactly like Moses was given the instructions? Exactly like God instructed? Because it was a replica of the heavenly tabernacle. The whole point of this tabernacle was to point them to the heavenly tabernacle. It was never supposed to be the end game. It was always just a means to the end of the heavenly tabernacle. The priests of Aaron were to point to the great high priest. The sacrifice that the priest laid on the altar was to point to the priest Jesus who laid himself on the altar. The tabernacle was to point to the tabernacle of the heavens. It was always meant to be signposts to worship the great high priest as he serves and ministers in the heavenly tabernacles. Tabernacle. So he's saying, you don't understand, this tabernacle was never supposed to be the basis of your hope. You you see the blessings of the tabernacle, but it was never meant to be the object of your worship. The religious system that God gave Israel was never meant to be their hope, it was only to point them to Jesus, the Messiah who is their hope. If you think about the tabernacle, what was it and what significance did it have in the life of the average Israelite? Again, let's review the narrative of your scriptures. When they came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. They came to Mount Sinai. God said, come up here. They were scared to death. Moses began to act as an intercessor. He went to the top of the mountain. He met with God on behalf of the people. He received the will of God written on stone tablets and then in more detail. He received instructions to build the tabernacle as a a replica, a shadow, a picture of the heavenly tabernacles. And what was the purpose of the tabernacle? It was to be the dwelling place of God. But the only problem is... God, as holy God, could not dwell in the midst of sinful people. So God graciously and mercifully provided a way for holiness to be in the midst of sinful people. And it was this sacrificial system where priests interceded on behalf of the people. They first, the high priest, the son of Aaron, he sacrificed an animal for his own sin... Because he was sinner himself. This is what chapter 9 and 10 get into. And he, he sacrificed it for his own sin. So the tabernacle was a tent system. This big tent. Not like a pup tent like you think of in our day and age. This was a massive with beams that had cloth hanging down. And it created an outer court. And then inside the outer court there was an inner holy of holies if you will. A holy place. And then inside of the holy of holies there was the most holy place. So you have outer court, holy place, holy of holies, or most holy place. And that most holy place had a veil separating it from the holy place and the inner holy of holies. And only one person, the high priest of the line of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, was given permission to come through the veil, into the Holy of Holies, where he then sacrificed, or took this animal that he had sacrificed, took his blood, and rubbed it on the altar. I was studying it this week, and it's just such an amazing picture, of, of what we know about Jesus. He rubbed it on the altar, as is to say, this, the, all, even the tabernacle is impure. And then he laid his hands on the goat, symbolizing the sins of the people were placed on the goat. And he let the goat go out of the camp, symbolizing the removal of sin. The scapegoat would take the sin off into the wilderness... And then he sacrificed another animal and he laid that blood on top of a solid slab of gold that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that slab of gold was the atonement place where the blood of the animal was laid across symbolically covering the sins of the people. And then once that was done, the glory of God descended upon the tabernacle. So the glory of God was in the midst of the camp of the sinful people through this means. And what do we see happen when God said, all right, go take the promised land. So they pack up this tent. That's what the the Levites did. They packed it up. They carried it around. They had poles that carried the Ark of the Covenant. If you weren't careful, if you touch the covenant, you stumble into the covenant, you died. Holiness is on display here. And so as they went to the promised land, they failed to take the promised land because they failed to trust and obey God. And so they were told, you will wander in the wilderness desert for 40 years. But what was their gift in the desert desert for 40 years? It was this tabernacle. This tabernacle is where God dwelt in their presence wherever they went for 40 years. They would pack it up and they would move it with them until finally that generation died away and their children were raised up and they finally by faith took the promised land and they conquered the promised land. All throughout your historical books, you're reading the stories of them conquering the promised land until finally they get to Jerusalem where God tells them Jerusalem will be my holy city and they take the tabernacle there and they turn it into a permanent temple instead of a mobile tabernacle. And so the permanent temple, which people go to Israel today to go visit and see the holy wall, that temple was first a tabernacle. And so this is a massively important part of the community of faith of Israel. It represented the the presence of God. It represented their hope of being able to have God in their midst, though they are sinful. It's just Filled with theological significance in their mind. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's over. Get over it. And they're just going, you've got to be kidding me. It's everything to us. And he's saying, I know, but it's over. Because the great high priest has come. And he has entered in to the holy of holies of God. And instead of laying down an animal that had to be repeated every year after year, he laid down himself, the perfect God-man, the ultimate sacrifice. He says, it's finished. Be done with the old. And so he's blowing their mind about the tabernacle. And so the, the most parallel application for us is, what good gifts has God given us? that were designed to point us to trust in Jesus, but instead of seeing them as shadows, we see them as the ultimate hope. I think of Lord's Supper. I think of baptism. And I think of church membership. All those are gifts from God and very important for us as believers. They are all meant to Draw, help us draw near to God to put our faith in Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper, the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ, which was, which was crucified for our sin. When we drink the juice, it represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was laid upon the atonement cover before God to say, this blood covers his sin. When we baptize, we are symbolically identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as they come out of the water. The waters represent the cleansing of sin. The the whole picture of it is theologically we were dead with Christ. We were buried and we were raised to walk in newness of life. We've been born again by faith in Jesus Christ and we celebrate this. And membership, just the language itself, we are members of a body, the body of Christ. Each one of us becomes the body of Christ when we join in faith by faith in him. And the membership in this church is symbolic of that. We, we challenge each other, encourage each other, hold each other accountable to live godly lives that are worthy of the holiness of Christ. I mean, everything we do, we sing about Jesus, but all of these things, if we're not careful, they are gifts from God. But if we don't understand them properly, they become our hope. We start thinking that the Lord's Supper saves us. We start thinking that baptism saves us. We start thinking that church membership saves us. And none of those things save us. There's only one that saves. And his name is Jesus Christ. And all of those things point to Jesus there is only one name under heaven by which men are saved, and his name is Jesus. And his, the whole book of the Bible is a portrait of Jesus. It's a story of Jesus. It points you trust in Jesus. There is no other way. And so he says, you love the tabernacle. You love the religious system that, I gave, that God gave you as a part of the old covenant. But you need to understand Jesus serves a better tabernacle. You know, Plato was a philosopher, and he was a Greek philosopher, and when you read philosophers, you, you, if you're like me, you just kind of go, that is awesome, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> but in his, he has the analogy of the cave, which he's famous for, and, and the analogy was trying to help people understand his understanding of where higher knowledge comes from and how, where truth really is. And what he said was, truth is not discovered in studying these things that we can see and observe with the senses. Truth is in understanding the realities, the ideals, the forms that exist behind these things. And he says, these things that we can see and touch are only shadows of the ultimate reality. And to get his point across, because we're all going, do What? He says, let me explain with an analogy. And he says, the analogy of the cave is, imagine someone has been chained up in a cave, and all they've seen their entire life as prisoners chained up is looking at the cave wall... And they see the shadows of people and movement and objects dancing on the walls. But what those are coming from is there's the reality that is people passing before the fire. And it's casting a shadow on the walls. But the prisoners have been chained. So that all they know, all their lives, their complete understanding is that the shadows are reality to them. And he says, that's how it works. But we see he falls short in his philosophical understanding of truth. But it seems like he might have been reading Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says that the tabernacle was a shadow of the true tabernacle. Everything that you see in the religious system that God gave was a shadow of the reality, the truth, the love of a friend is to point you to know the ultimate perfect love of Jesus Christ. The enjoyment of anything on this earth is to point you to know that ultimate happiness and joy is found in Jesus Christ. The religious system of this earth, the sacrifice of the priest, is to point you to trust in Jesus who laid himself down as the sacrifice. The priest of Aaron was to point to the priest, Jesus Christ. The tabernacle was to point to the heavenly tabernacles. When Jesus shows up in the gospels and he walks up to the temple, which they thought was it, what did he say? He said, tear He said, I will tear this temple down and bu- you will tell it, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And what was he talking about? He says, the scriptures tell us he's talking about himself. He says, I'm the tabernacle. I'm the dwelling place of God. I am where all the glory of God dwells, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Christmas is all about. The glory of God in the heavenly of heavens has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And to know the joy of God, to know the love of God, to experience true happiness, to know the glory of God, is to know Jesus Christ. It's an amazing concept that the writer of Hebrews is just blowing their mind and should be blowing ours as well. So the first thing he does is to say Jesus is a better hope because he serves in a better tabernacle. The second thing he does, he says Jesus is a better hope because he serves a better covenant which has better promises. I like this because we're just practical people. He says, why trust Jesus? Because he's better. It's stupid not to. I mean, let's just lay it out there, pros and cons, old covenant, new covenant. When you see them stacked up, it's a no-brainer. Trust Jesus. He's got a better covenant enacted on better promises. So let's look at verses 6 through 12 and see the better covenant with better promises. He says in verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, we wouldn't have needed a second. So in verse 8, for finding fault with them, he says. Now, this is the longest quote in your Bible, the Old Testament quote in the New Testament is from Jeremiah 31. Let me set it up so we'll make sense of it before we go into it. Who were the prophets? Again, back to the biblical narrative. They came out, they got the mountain, they got the covenant, they got the old covenant, they went in. They finally, after 40 years, make it to the promised land. In the promised land, it was very clear the old covenant had stipulations. You obey, you get it. You get the blessings. You don't obey, you're kicked out. It's not complicated. Just like we tell our kids, obey or discipline. So they disobeyed. God says, I need to send my message to them my messengers, the prophets, will warn them of discipline is coming. Discipline in the form of getting kicked out of the land. It's called exile. And so they were to be kicked out of the land if they didn't straighten up. Well, they didn't straighten up. And so book after book of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, have word of warning. You're about to be exiled from the land. Assyria is going to come in and pull out most of you, uh, some of you. And then Babylon is going to come in and pull the rest of you out. You're going to be kicked out of the land because you're not obeying. You're not trusting me, therefore you're not obeying me. And so the threat of punishment is what the the prophets had to say. That was their main message. But in the middle of all this word of discipline and warning is a word of hope. The message of the prophets also contained a line of hope. And that hope is what we're reading today from Jeremiah 31. A little ray of hope in the midst of the dark days of judgment is coming. And that hope is based on what? The new covenant. And so he's saying, you know the old covenant, it's failed. You're doomed. But I have good news. There's a new covenant coming. And that's what he says. He quotes here. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel... And with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out. Talking about Moses, the old covenant. Not like that one. For they didn't continue in my covenant on that one, says the Lord. But this covenant will have three different benefits. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Number one. I will put my laws into their minds. And I will write them the laws on their hearts I will be their God and they shall be my people they're going to get it right verse 11 and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying know the Lord why well because they will know me all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities and number three I will remember their sins no more. So in these, this quote of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the author of Hebrews shows us three great promises of the new covenant that, that are so superior to the promises we find in the old covenant. First one is complete transformation. He says, man, you're going to get it right because I'm going to write it on your minds. I'm going to put it in your heart. The law, my will, will not be on clay, on, on stone tablets. They won't be on scrolls. They'll be in your heart. They'll be in your mind. They will be your own desires. You will know the will of God. You will share the desires of God. You will be completely transformed from the inside out by Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant. Now, how will that happen? Because God will go from an external tabernacle, an external dwelling place, and we become his tabernacle. He says, I'm going I'm to move up inside of you, and I'm going to make you do it. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to completely change your desires so that you want my will. And he's referring to the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Now, we see that when we go to Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Same promises, but we see new words. He mentions the Spirit. Listen to Ezekiel, another prophet, talking about the same day, the new covenant. But he says, moreover, moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinance. Why will the new covenant work? Because God will make you do it. It's an amazing concept. He says, look, you can't do this on your own. I've got to change you from the inside out. The requirement of the new covenant is a transformed life by the Spirit of God. It's not some external behavior. It's an internal transformation that results in an external behavior change. But it starts from the inside first. He's turning everything on its head. And so we see the first promise of the new covenant that's greater than the old covenant is complete transformation the next promise is complete participation i get this from a verse 11 he says and all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them here he's talking about the difference of the old and new in the old covenant everyone who was born of a certain family who was born jewish participated in the covenant but not every one of those individuals had faith in the Messiah. That's why Paul in Romans says not all Israel is Israel. Because not all those people who were in name Israel had faith in the Messiah of Israel. But he says it's radically different in the New Covenant. He says in the New Covenant, you're only a part of the covenant. You enter into covenant by faith in Jesus, the mediator of the covenant. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. You're not in the covenant if you're not trusting in Christ, the the Messiah, Jesus. And so you don't have to turn and say, come on, know Christ. He says, because if you're in the covenant, it's because you know Christ. You've seen the message of the old and you put your faith in Jesus, which is what the whole point of the old was. So he says, it will be complete participation. All those who are in the covenant will be there by faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So complete participation. So complete transformation, complete participation, finally, complete forgiveness. The third and final way the new covenant is better than the old. He states it most beautifully in verse 12. I will remember their sins... For a year and a half, or however long you feel it takes to to work it off. I'll remember their sins until they've done 10 good things to work off that one. Is that what it says? I'll remember their sins until they've gone to church three Sundays in a row. I'll remember their sins until they've given, until it hurts. I'll remember their sins until they take the Lord's Supper. I'll remember their sins until they join a church, especially Norris Ferry, where they (laughs) expect a lot. I'll remember their sins until they're baptized. That's not what he says. Those who trust in Christ, he says, I will remember their sins. No more. And that's the gospel. That's everything. That is what we will spend the rest of this life on earth trying to grasp. He remembers my sins. No more. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who what? Are in Christ. Christ. That means when you're sinning, that egregious sin, that you would die if we wrote it and put it on the screen. While you're in the very act of that sin, if you're truly hidden in Christ, Christ says, God doesn't see this. And some of you right now are going, I'm not so sure that's right. This is going to give people a license to sin. And I'll say, no, because if you're in Christ, he's given you a new heart. He's given you a new mind. And you will not be able to abuse that grace. You will hate that sin. You will fight it with everything you got. It will disgust you. I'm not going to reduce grace out of fear of someone abusing grace. You can't abuse grace because if you find yourself abusing grace, then you're not in Christ. You can't be happy about that. You can't just go, sin all the more, I'm free in Christ because the Holy Spirit says, that is not right. And everything in you says, I can't do that, I must fight this sin. It's because you've been transformed, completely transformed from the inside out. And so you have a new outlook. You hate that sin, you fight that sin, you wage war with that sin, but you are not condemned for that sin. Praise God. And that's why we sing, and that's why we baptize, and that's why we do Lord's Supper, and that's why we covenant to live holy lives, to help each other fight sin so that we reflect the glory of the amazing, extravagant grace of God in our lives. Are you with me? That's the Christian life. That's the promises of the new covenant. It is a whole lot better than the old covenant. Where they did not have their sins forgotten. They did not have them completely satisfied. In fact, the whole burnt offering where they burned it completely incinerated was to be a picture of how Jesus satisfies completely the wrath of God that is due our sin. It completely burns it away, completely satisfies it. A smoke that rises an aroma to the nostrils of God of pleasure that he has satisfied his own wrath in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, so we are set free from condemnation and guilt, set free to live for the glory of God. That's what the whole message has been about. Jesus is the great high priest who enters into the heavenly of heavenlies, the holy of holies. He offers himself his blood on the atonement seat of the Father. He sits down at the right hand of God and he anchors our soul saying, I cover their sin and their shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Having made his point abundantly clear, he comes to verse 13 and he just brings it home. Verse 13, talking about Jeremiah's quote he says now when Jeremiah said a new covenant he's made the first one obsolete whatever's becoming obsolete is growing old it is ready to disappear let it go is what he is saying you got to get over this I know it was meaningful I know it is special I know God gave it to you I know your parents passed it down to you but you got to let it go All of it pointed to Jesus. Some of you are saying, oh, but the baptism was so special. Let it go. It pointed to Jesus. The Lord's Supper, yes, but it points to Jesus. Don't worship the Lord's Supper. Don't worship this. This church is awesome. I don't want to say it. Let it go. As long as you understand it points you to Jesus. Don't fall in love with the shadow. Worship Jesus. He forgets your sins forever. Let's pray together.